I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Nate. Taylor. I want you to listen to this. Okay. I hear static. Wait for it. Did you hear that? Yeah, I hear that. There it is again. So so that little honk? Uh Uh-huh. That's a recording of the ivory-billed woodpecker? Yeah. Captured in 1935 by the guy who actually founded the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Oh, really? I love that. I, I used to go to their website to uh, listen to bird sounds. Yeah. And so, so this is a huge bird. It's as big as your forearm, head like a little pickaxe, big, perfectly round eyes. It, it is such a striking bird that people have given it a nickname. I know the nickname. Have you heard this? Oh, yeah. It's the Lord God Bird. I listen to Sufjan Stevens. Mm, the Lord God Bird. <laughs> But by the time President Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act in 1973... We have passed new laws to protect the environment. There hadn't been an officially recognized sighting in the United States in almost 30 years. Hmm. And we have mobilized the power of public concern. That's not good. No. But there is much yet to be done. When The Simpsons first aired in 1989... Cowabunga, dude! It had been almost 50 years since the last official recognized sighting. No! Now, I should say there were lots of reported sightings. Have you seen this bird? But never anything universally accepted by ornithologists. The only picture 
is grainy. Just disputed photographs. And horribly out of focus. Tantalizing but inconclusive recordings. This is an interesting sound recorded uh, on January 29th. And more often than not, a little bit of controversy. Uh, the bird dropped in from above the canopy into the channel, headed straight towards me. It kind of sounds like the Bigfoot of the bird world. That's people literally say the Sasquatch. Really? Of birds, yeah. Oh, yeah. I spent 241 days out here in the swamps. And you didn't get a picture? No. So this is a little harder than I thought, maybe. This is quite a bit harder than what we, we all thought. So, in 2021... Now 77 years since the last universally accepted sighting, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made a proposal to declare the ivory-billed woodpecker, along with 23 other species, officially extinct. John Yang has more now on what experts are calling an accelerating crisis. Other species on the list, the Bachman's warbler songbird, and a group of birds and bats found only in the Pacific Islands. Those are all sad. It's like listing names of the dead. I know, right? But, Nate, Mm -hmm. even though these extinctions are terribly tragic, obviously tragic, you know what I was thinking when I heard about this announcement about the 23 species? What? I was thinking, only 23? Only 23. Because if it took 77 years to just name this one woodpecker extinct, how many other species are, like, waiting in limbo? and are already gone? That's a good question. It's a dark question. So there's this whole field I call dark extinctions. It feels like the number should be bigger. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. Scientists say we're in the midst of the planet's sixth mass extinction, that Earth's biodiversity is on the precipice. But if that's the case, why don't we hear about extinction more often? We've had four extinctions already in in New England. This will be the fifth that eventually won't be talked about either, likely. Today, producer Taylor Quimby is sharing the story of a hunt. A hunt to find out if the low numbers of declared extinctions is a conservation success story or just the tip of an exceptionally depressing iceberg. So, Nate, um, question. Were you a Hardy Boys fan growing up? No, I grew up in the 1990s, not the 1950s. The Hardy Boys are still popular. Are they? I read them when I was in I was in the 80s. Yeah, hmm. I never read the Hardy Boys. I was not a Hardy Boys fan. All right, well, <laughs> whatever. Uh, to get in the mood for this episode, I have personally been calling this the mystery of the missing extinctions. Mm-hmm. And this mystery starts, as many Hardy Boys adventures do, with a report from the United Nations. What? An alarming new report just released by the U.N. that says roughly one million species are on the verge of extinction. So this was in 2019, and the report was dire. One million species on the brink. That includes more than 40 percent of amphibian species and more than a third of marine mammals. And what's worse, most of this crisis can be traced back to 
human activity. From climate change, overfishing and pollution. But here's the thing. Aside from the woodpecker I mentioned at the top, name me five species that have gone extinct in your lifetime. Uh, that have gone extinct in my lifetime. Yeah. Oh, man. One second. Um. Hmm. Yeah, right? Wait. No. Give me time. This is just a recording. I've got time to think. What did... That rhinoceros. <laughs> that one rhinoceros. So my point is that the most famous modern extinctions were years ago. We're talking the dodo, mm-hmm. the passenger pigeon. Right. Uh, and by the way, Nate, the northern white rhino is what you're thinking about. And it is actually only a subspecies of white rhinoceros. And that was on the way out since we were kids. <laughs> it was. It was. So it seems to me that if things are this bad, we should be hearing about extinctions all the time, right? Right. Where do you start trying to close that gap, though? Like, like if this was a missing persons case, for instance, like where, where would you go first? Well, uh, to the people that actually track endangered species here in the U.S., which is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You know, 99% of all listed species are still with us today that have been added to the list. So this is Sharon Marino. Uh, She is the Northeast's Assistant Regional Director of Ecological Services at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh, that is a very bureaucratic title. They all are, man. They all are. In terms of number of species that we've actually delisted, we've delisted 52 species and downlisted. So that means going from an endangered status to a threatened status, 56 species. So, you know, I... I think we have a lot of successes that we can share. And, you know, iconic species like the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon. So, like, purely from a percentage standpoint, this law and the folks who are enforcing it, they were, like, knocking it out of the park. Well, yes and no. There are more than 100,000 species of plants and animals here in the United States. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is only able to study about 50 a year to decide whether or not they should be listed. Oh, so so there's like an endangered species list, and then there's possibly like an endangered species wait list? And that wait list is long. So the Center for Biological Diversity, a serious advocate for endangered species, this organization, Mm -hmm. they did a study in the early 2000s. They documented 42 species that they say went extinct while on that wait list, and another 29 that went extinct without ever having even entered a formal process whatsoever. Well, there you go. That's your missing extinctions then. Like, that's twice as many as are officially declared, right? It is, and the story gets deeper because that is just here in the U.S. So to widen my search Interpol style... Uh, which I don't think the Hardy Boys ever did. But, um, <laughs> I don't think they ever got Interpol involved. <laughs> no. Uh, I wound up reaching out to a guy named Arna Mowers. He's a professor of biodiversity at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He told me about the global version of the endangered species list, which is called the IUCN Red List. And their definition for extinction is pretty strict, by the way. The formal and depressing definition of extinction is... A taxon, so a species, is presumed extinct when exhaustive surveys in known and or expected habitat at appropriate times, time of day, seasonal, annual, throughout its historic range have failed to record an individual. 
Those like exhaustive, appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. Now, because it's global, the red list has way more species designated as extinct, right? More than 900 in total. But Arna Moores agrees with me that if things are as bad as scientists are saying they are, even 900 is too low. Of course, there's a big difference between, you know, at risk of extinction and already extinct, but you'd still think they'd be closer given that, as you say, we're in the middle of this crisis, which means things should be popping off, you know, continually, right? And that's why we dug into this and realized that, yeah, that's partly because there's this this huge kind of backlog of lost species that may or may not be extinct. Wait, so yeah, you can't find them. Does it mean that they're extinct? Uh, well... It just means we can't find them. Exactly. They are lost to us. Uh-huh. So... Do you remember how the ivory-billed woodpecker hadn't had an official sighting in over 70 years? Mm-hmm. Like, that might be considered a lost species. And Arna decided to see how many other terrestrial vertebrate species, so we're not counting bugs or plants or fish, yeah. which ones haven't been seen in a really long time. They said, well, what are we going to use? 10 years, 50 years? Or, you know, every, every species is different. And we said, well, we're just going to arbitrarily say 50 years and take a look. And there's, you know, 562 Uh, terrestrial vertebrate species that have not been seen in at least 50 years. And that's almost twice as many as the ones that have officially been declared extinct. So either we're really bad at finding these species or they're probably extinct. Well, yeah, I mean, I think like missing socks. Yeah, You know, some of them mm. are, like, truly gone forever and we'll yep. never get them back. And some of them are buried in the, in you know, like, under your bed. Yeah, they're orphaned somewhere deep inside the uh, bowels of your closet. Yeah, yeah. Extinct animals are like socks, is the moral of this story. <laughs> uh, listen, the most shocking thing from my conversation with Arna is that, you know, a lot of these animals are, like, small little, you know, voles or mice or mm-hmm. things like that. Hard to track. Right. But some of them are, like, fairly large important animals. So, for example, there are only five egg-laying mammals that we know of on the entire planet. Uh, One of them is, Nate, can you guess? Oh, um, uh, platypus. Yes, exactly, the platypus. And the other four are species of these kind of hedgehoggy-looking animals called echidnas. Oh, yeah. And several of those echidnas haven't been seen for 40, 50 years either. You'd think people would want to know about those guys because they are so rare. Another really wild example is the cupre. Have you ever heard of it? No. So it is a big cow with these beautiful curved horns, kind of like crescent moons. Yeah. And you will find depictions of it everywhere in Cambodia. It's on statues. It's on stamps. Oh, yeah. Okay. Even their national football team is nicknamed the cuprays. Really? Uh, It's Cambodia's national mammal, right? So it's like your bald eagle kind of thing. It's like the national animal or our beaver. Uh, It hasn't been seen since 1969. Wow. And you're like, well, how did, you know, how does that work? It's a cow. (laughs) (laughs) It's huge. So I think the question that I have now is like, why is it so hard to declare something extinct? I mean, is it just uh, inertia, lack of resources? Let me ask you a question in the Socratic style. Okay. What proof do you have that aliens do not exist? I don't have any proof of that. It's because it's so hard to essentially prove a negative, right? 
if you weren't in the picture frame right now, that doesn't mean you're not at home. It just means I can't see you. <laughs> so this, by the way, is a guy named Sean O'Brien. He is CEO of a nonprofit called NatureServe. NatureServe is nature's tech firm. And we are the source of data on threatened and imperiled species across the United States and Canada. Uh, and NatureServe exists because of problem number two, right? Endangered species do not respect borders. So when we talk about New Hampshire and Vermont, if you look at the data from the two states, they're not really comparable. You have to go through all sorts of gymnastics to try and make them match up. So NatureServe consolidates all the data from state agencies and academia and data from citizen science platforms like iNaturalist. And then they calculate all that information to recommend whether such and such species should be labeled critically endangered or just threatened or a species of least concern. Right. This sounds a little this sounds a little bit like a commercial. too. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. But but let me just say that uh, they are a way more important part of the process than I would have guessed going into this story. But even a group like NatureServe can't help with problem number three which is sometimes there isn't much data to pull, um, either because there literally aren't many folks studying a particular animal or because that animal lives in, let's say, a super hard-to-get-to place, mm -hmm. a jungle on the side of a remote mountain range yeah. in a dense swamp. Think about how hard it would be to, like, hike to the top of the Himalayas to see a snow leopard, you know? Yeah. Problem number four, we don't even always agree on what is and isn't a species. Mm. Genetics may help us figure out some of this um, going forward, but it's, it's, it's a non-trivial problem. Or have enough scientists to even comb through all the ones we actually do agree on. Right. The vast majority of beetles have, don't have names. You know, they may have been seen and photographed or you know, museum specimens, but there's not enough beetle experts in the world to describe all the beetles in anybody's lifetime. Because there's just so many. That's fascinating. So, so what all this means, right, is that some of the places with the richest biodiversity are also the places where we have no idea what we're losing. Mm -hmm. And there's also this desire to not have things be declared extinct because there's enough habitat and there's enough space out there that maybe the ivory-billed woodpecker is somewhere or some parakeet is still somewhere. And if you've got even a shred of hope, Nate, that something is still out there. You might not want to declare it extinct because being on the endangered species list affords special habitat protections and helps raise funds for conservation. But being extinct offers diddly squat. Nothing. So, Nate, let's try and understand this through the lens of the ivory-billed woodpecker. Okay. First of all, just because there hasn't been an official sighting doesn't mean it's not there. Can't prove a negative. Its habitat, if it still does exist, is now restricted to very difficult-to-access swamps in the south that have to be navigated by boat. Hard to do the research. Another challenge. There have been lots of unconfirmed sightings, but what determines confirmation? Right. So, confirmation for me might not be confirmation for you. But here's the thing. The ivory-billed woodpecker may be the most sought after of these lost species. Millions of dollars and thousands of hours of time have been spent trying to find it. So if there is one species we should be able to confirm one way or another... It should be this one. This is the one, yeah. And yet... With that, we're going to move on to our next pre-registered commenter. 
John Williams. John, if you are on the call. Uh, you remember at the beginning of the story, I said the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was proposing that we put it on the extinction list? Yes. Well, before a proposed delisting takes place, the ESA requires a public comment period. Right. And let me tell you, people have thoughts. Since the year 2000, eight expeditions have searched for the ivory-billed woodpecker and have reported encounters. The ivory-billed woodpecker has been deemed extinct by some people at least several times in the past 120 years, and each time has defied those who would write it off. The species status assessment on which this proposal was based uh, is, is very light. So in January 2022. This is a premature proposal. Person. Premature. After person. The proposal was premature. And I'm not talking quacks and conspiracy theorists. I'm talking respected ornithologists and birders and zoologists. The delisting of this species is premature. I think there's ample evidence to show. Came out to that, say um, it is too soon to call the ivory-billed woodpecker extinct. This ivory-billed woodpecker controversy is a, uh, it's a moral issue. So was it? Did they? Did the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reverse the decision? Well, they delayed it. Classic. So this hearing was in January, and then uh, this summer they put the decision off for an additional six months. Classic federal move. <laughs> We're not going to reverse. We'll just, let's all take a breather here. And, and get this, in August, a group called Project Principalis, um, mm-hmm. which sounds like a CIA mission, <laughs> yeah, uh, put out some very far away drone footage of what they claim is an ivory-billed woodpecker. Some scientists are totally convinced. Others have called this footage laughable. Mean. A policy guy with the Center for Biological Diversity, which is usually all about getting animals onto the endangered species list, said, quote, there are better and more reliable photographs of Sasquatch floating around the internet than these images (laughs) of the supposed ivory-billed woodpecker. Oh, man. So the controversy continues. It does indeed. I feel like a word I've been hearing a lot tonight is premature, that like the delisting's premature, everything we're doing is premature. But the last credible sighting has been in, you know, 80 years ago, something like that. It's been a while. It's been plenty of time to search through all these mystical swamps um, and bogs and wetlands to try to find a very large and supposedly very loud woodpecker. At some point or another, you gotta accept that it's extinct. One thing I have discovered doing this story, Nate, is that it's easy to care about a big, beautiful bird like the ivory-billed woodpecker. But if we're going to address this extinction crisis, we are going to have to get people to care about things that aren't as charismatic. And I think that is a harder task than you might believe. That's coming up in just a minute. But first, this is a story that, in a way, is about what we take for granted, what we choose to pay attention to, what we choose to ignore. And I just want to say, if you really value this show, don't take it for granted. I mean, sure, we occasionally get sponsors, but don't be fooled. This is a public radio operation, and we rely on your donations to fund this work. If you can't afford to donate a couple of bucks, share the show, rate it, review it, all that good stuff. 
But if you can donate, do it. There's a link in the show notes, and thanks. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer and extinction detective Taylor Quimby. So this spring, I got a tip. Okay. About a possible extinction taking place, not in a remote swamp or one of the Galapagos Islands, but in a city park about 10 minutes from my apartment. You mean in Manchester? Yeah, in, in New Hampshire. So to learn more, I drove out to Rock Rimmon Park and met up with Bill Nichols. Nice to meet you, Bill. He's a state botanist with the New Hampshire Natural Heritage Bureau. Is, is there a history to Rock Rimmon Park that I should know about? I mean, is this like a historical place of any kind? Um, it, it's a botanical, uh, it's well known to be a botanical hotspot. There's been 10 uh, state endangered and state threatened plant species that have been collected here over the last 120 years. And just so you know, Nate, this is like an actual city park. There is a playground. Uh, there's a bunch of brand new <laughs> pickleball courts. Everybody plays pickleball now. During the summer months, they're all we, every court is taken. But towering over these pickleball courts is this big stony tooth that just juts up like 150 feet over Manchester's west side. Mm-hmm. And if you climb this short but steep trail to the top, you can see the whole city. It is very cool. It's like kind of place that a teenager might want to hang out. But also, people treat it like a dump. Uh, have you been up? You've been to the summit? Uh, no. Because once we get up there, there's graffiti everywhere. There's more trash. Um, gla- in some places, the glass is replacing the natural soil uh, in the crevices. And because of all that, five of the ten state endangered or state threatened rare plant species that have been documented here, um, we believe, are extirpated from the site. Extirpated, uh, for folks who don't know, that's like extinct. It's like locally extinct. Yep, gone you from know. one area. Yeah, you can be gone from. It could be gone from New Hampshire, but it could be in Maine. Right, exactly. Um, now, Bill and I are here 
because one of the rare plants that is not here anymore, that's gone, mm-hmm. may have been the only population of its kind left on the entire planet, which is different. And that plant is called... Smooth slender crabgrass, Digitaria filiformis variety, Lavaglumus. Whoa, 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 slow that down. <laughs> what? One syllable at a time. Uh, the, the genus crabgrass is uh, Digitaria. The uh, slender crabgrass is Digitaria filiformis. And the variety of crabgrass that we believe very likely has gone extinct is variety Lavaglumus. So Digitaria filiformis Lavaglumus. I mean, to be fair, even our transcription software had a hard time with that. <laughs> yeah, it's it says, a, digitally a former slave of Loomis. Here it says lava gloomism. <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds like a, that sounds like an emotional state. That sounds like a plant in Mordor. <laughs> yeah, it does, lava gloomis. So, so here's the conundrum, Nate. Bill thinks this might be the first extinction in New Hampshire on record. Really? Yeah. But when I met up with him, I still had to keep all this news under wraps because he was still waiting on DNA tests mm-hmm. to make sure that the old crabgrass collected here was genetically distinct from some other crabgrasses that were recently collected in Mexico and Venezuela. So, okay, we need to press pause here. Are are we talking about crabgrass, like the stuff that you see, that weed that sprouts out from sidewalk cracks and drives lawn people bananas? Oh, yeah. The main difference that separates smooth slender crabgrass from the other three varieties in that complex is the spikelet is, is glabrous. There's no pubescence. There aren't any hairs on the spikelet. The other three varieties are hair, have a hairy spikelet. Okay, so Taylor, I need to ask an honest question. This is no offense to Bill. Listen, I know where this is going. You have to ask it. I asked the same question. Given how many possibly much more important species are on the brink, does it really matter if this very particular kind of crabgrass goes extinct. Okay, well, before I answer it, let me say this gets a little worse because it's been over 90 years since this thing was last seen when a botanist collected a sample from this very rock on August 27th, 1931. And on that day, 30 collections were made. And about what size is a collection in that case? Well, on average, three plants per sheet with fruit and roots. So... It, that is clearly over-collection, and it could have played a role in the eventual extinction of smooth slender crabgrass at this site. Well, that must be deeply disappointing to think about um, as a botanist. <laughs> this is a tragic so, so story. That poor botanist in 1931 could have inadvertently just made that crabgrass extinct. Yeah, yeah. Grim, but like... Again, how do you get your average person to care? I mean, like, think about it. Like, a lot of folks are 100% against extinction. But if you ask them, you know, what they're thinking about, they're thinking about bumblebees or pandas or condors. Well, I I asked Bill the same question, and he pointed to wolves. The extirpation of wolves and the extinction of the eastern cougar led to uh, the white-tailed deer. Their population just took right off. That led to overbrowsing, which is having an impact on forest succession Bill, I don't want to play the devil's advocate when it comes to saying that extinctions don't matter because obviously they do. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, extra, extirpation of wolves from the landscape, you know, compared to compared to crabgrass, which I think most people are going to think crabgrass, like that's the stuff that I don't want on my lawn. It's, it's much easier with uh, cuddly mammals than it is with plants, especially a grass and especially a crabgrass. 
but it's not like all crabgrass is going away. It's literally a crabgrass that grows on one rock. I, I, I mean, I think the scale of those examples is totally, totally off. Uh, completely off, yeah. But Bill and others like to make this analogy. And the analogy is that there's a lot of rivets on an airplane. You take out a few of them, and like, the plane's fine. Like, like literally nothing changes. You take out a few more, nothing changes. You take out a few more, nothing changes. But eventually the wing falls off. And then the, the thing crashes. Right? And, but we don't know which rivet is the one that's going to cause the, ring, the wing to fall off. And it's the same way with the biodiversity that's out there. You know, the smooth, curly crabgrass may not be the one that causes these that ecosystem in that park to, to go down, but it's one of the rivets in that ecosystem. And the other piece that I'll say is like, even if it doesn't, even if it didn't matter, mm-hmm. isn't there a moral case to be made? That's the argument I've heard. Isn't there a moral responsibility that if we know we can save something, shouldn't we save it? But it, but regardless, Bill is admittedly very pessimistic about the public reaction if this is declared extinct. We have that public uh, the manuscript that will be published in a, in one of the uh, science journals. So the word would get out that way. There will be a press release associated with it. Um, but then, it like other extinctions, particularly ones that aren't cuddly and and fuzzy and charismatic, it'll fizzle out. It, it'll fizzle out. There's no question. Um, I mean, we've had four extinctions already in, in New England. How widely are those four species names known to the public and to um, botanists, even? I don't think I know them. Who talks about those four species? This, this will be the fifth that eventually won't be talked about either, likely. So what I didn't realize when I was talking to Bill is that even if nobody cares about the extinction of smooth, slender crabgrass, documenting it still has a purpose. I realized we didn't know what was extinct. And if you don't know what's extinct, you can't learn from it. All right, so this is Wes Knapp. He is the chief botanist at NatureServe and uh, one of a growing number of folks that study extinction. So there's this whole field I call dark extinctions, which are extinctions that happened and no one knew about them. So it's like an undocumented extinction. Right. If a lost species is one we're not sure about, a dark extinction is one we just neglected to pay attention to until after it was too late. Huh. Um, And Wes and his team have tracked down a number of these that, like smooth, slender crabgrass, were collected long ago and then just put in a drawer somewhere and forgotten. In 2020, I described and recognized this plant called uh, the large-flowered barber's buttons as being misinterpreted by science. Um, it was thought to range from Pennsylvania all the way down to Tennessee, and then it was gone from Western North Carolina. Now I remember pulling up specimens of this plant from Western North Carolina and saying, oh, that is not the same plant that occurs in Pennsylvania. It was shockingly different, because I knew the plants in Pennsylvania. And what we came to find out is that that plant from Western North Carolina is now extinct but it wasn't recognized as a distinct species until my work with collaborators. So we renamed the existing plants, a new name, the beautiful Barbara's Buttons, Marshallia pulchra, to show that they were different and that that was a dark extinction that went undetected for 101 years. It was last collected in 1919. That's a great name. Yeah, beautiful Barbara's Buttons. Yeah, I I love that. It feels very very, um, antiquated. 
Arbor's buttons. Okay, but anyway, Anyway, Nate. sorry, we digress. <laughs> Wes and his team wound up finding a total of 65 vascular plant species, so that's trees, shrubs, and a, a bunch of herbs, that all went extinct. And only two of them had even been registered on the IUCN Red List of Endangered Species. So all this has led him to realize that one of the biggest risk factors for plant extinctions are species that are only found in one place. 64% of all the extinct plants from the U.S. and Canada were known from just a single site. So there's this horrible disproportion of plants that are going extinct that are known from extremely narrow geographic distributions. So yeah, maybe the crabgrass is just one rivet. Right. But that missing rivet is also a clue so people like Wes can figure out how many others Mm -hmm. are also gone. Mm -hmm. And it's not a small number. So this summer, I got the heads up from Bill Nichols, crabgrass man. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Oh, good. Thanks, Taylor. Bill just got a DNA test. Turns out smooth, slender crabgrass is 100% its own extinct species. How are you feeling? What's Are you, are you in a state of big relief or are you in a state of letdown here? What, where's your head at? Uh, it, it Definitely a sense of relief. We were pretty confident maybe in the last 15, 20 years, that uh, smooth slender crabgrass was likely extinct, but we just didn't have the, the data to um, to declare that. It's kind of weird to hear him say that they could have said this like 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, and a few minutes later he told me they definitely could have done it a couple of years ago. Huh. But it would have always bothered me that, wait, there, there are possible next steps we could take to more confidently make that declaration. Why not do it? And that led... The, that led to two additional years of research. Scientist, man. Yeah. I mean, like, is this really necessary? Bill is being meticulous for a reason, because deciding how to split species is actually one of the most, no pun intended, divisive subjects in the biological sciences. Other scientists are not obligated to take him at his word. Like, he could put this out there and people could just be like, eh. People sometimes are reluctant to. It's like, oh, I have to new, learn a bunch of new names and oh, I just don't want to adopt this. There's, there's a phenomenon called taxonomic inertia. And and uh, there are real ripple effects here because even though it was too late for smooth, slender crabgrass, as far as we know, this project did put a spotlight on another type of rare and potentially endangered crabgrass in Florida that could still be saved. Mm. And this project put that on the road to being maybe listed. Well, that's cool. It's story in and of itself. The story of the extinction of smooth, slender crabgrass could be a wake-up call. You know, we have lost our first uh, native plant species to extinction. This wasn't a natural processes that led to this extinction. This was direct, directly related to human activity. And so it's important. that's important to, to let people know that that's happened so they can contemplate that and, um, and, and let it sit with them. Beautiful night. This is this is the beginning of fall. This is gorgeous. So Nate, I um, since I live just down the road from Rock Rimmon, mm-hmm. 
There's legit like two dozen people playing pickleball right now. I decided to drive over there and have a little ceremony. Well, this seems like a good place. Okay, pulling up the list here. I looked up the IUCN red list, the global list of endangered species, and I filtered for a category that doesn't get talked about enough, we haven't talked about yet, mm -hmm. critically endangered, possibly extinct. Um, and if there's a moral to this story, it might be that this is a designation that should be used more. Uh -huh. Right now, there are 1,200 names on there. So I guess I'm just gonna start at the top. But I decided I'm gonna read some of these names. Starting with the crabgrass. Smooth, slender crabgrass. Digitaria lavaglumis. And then started going through the rest. Lord Howe horn-headed stick insect. Cornicandovia australica. Possibly extinct. Because if you never name the dead, nobody will remember them, right? Carabia stubfoot toad. Adelopus erythropus. And if you don't name the problem, I don't think you'll ever come up with a solution. The turquoise-throated puffleg. Ariochnemes gaudini. Possibly extinct. Rotuma forest gecko. Lepidodactylus gardneri. The lesser Martinique skink, Capitellum metallicum. The greater Martinique skink, Mabuya maboya. Anagata skink, Spondylurus anagedi. The Saint Martin skink, possibly extinct. Nombre de Dios streamside frog, Progaster fecundus, possibly extinct. Bert's monkey grasshopper, Euskmidia Bertai, the seer Daria shovelnose sturgeon, possibly extinct. Miss Waldron's red colobus, Paleocolobus waldroni, possibly extinct. The admirable false brook salamander, Aquilo uraceae, praecellens. The San Isidro stubfoot toad. Adelopus pedimarmaritus, possibly extinct. The Scarlet Harlequin Toad. This episode Adelopus. was produced by Taylor Quimby. It was edited by me, Nate Hedgie, and Rebecca Lavoy. Additional editing help from Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and Felix Poon. Rebecca Lavoy is our executive producer. If you want to help survey rare plants in your area, look up your local Natural Heritage Bureau. In many places, the surveying of rare plants is done by trained volunteers, as well as professional botanists and other organizations. Also, according to the CEO of NatureServe, Citizen science data is a form of collective action that most anyone can do through apps like iButterfly and iNaturalist. And these things are really important in surveying rare species. eBird uh, from the Cornell Ornithology Lab, that's the biggest source of information about biodiversity on the planet anywhere. And it's collected by people who really, really care about birds. Special thanks to Noah Greenwald, Jonathan Reichard, 
Tom Martin, and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. We've got loads of links to more information about dark extinctions and to some of the papers we mentioned in this episode, as well as some really great reporting from over the years on the ivory-billed woodpecker. There's a piece from 60 Minutes and a very tongue-in-cheek feature from CBS's Steve Hartman that I really recommend. There's also one that's very near and dear to my heart that NPR produced a few years ago. Music in this episode came from Silver Maple and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Possibly extinct. The Haitian striped Sphero, Spherodactylus williamsi, possibly extinct. Pindus quillwort, Isoedes haldrichi, Arthur's stubfoot toad, Atelopus arthuri, the rove beetle, Geostyba melancocephala. The rove, the darkling beetle, Nesotes azoricus, the ground beetle. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.